Hello, welcome. I am so glad that you can join us today as you are in for a treat. We'll be listening to a lecture that Jeff recently gave as part of the annual Trembeth Lecture at Concordia University, Irvine. Jeff was fortunate enough to be the recipient of the Trembeth Endowment, which meant that he could set aside all of his regular teaching duties for a semester and focus on research instead. So at this lecture, he shares what he found in his research. And I thought it was particularly fitting that we shared this lecture on the podcast because it was because of this research that we decided to start the podcast in the first place and to develop the Protect Your Noggin with Jesus curriculum. So it's very dear to our hearts. We did break up the lecture into two episodes. So the episode that you'll be listening to today will involve a 10-minute summary of Jeff's findings plus a question and answer time. And then the second episode will be about an hour and 10 minutes long. It is the sort of where he goes more in depth with all of his research and findings. And that one is definitely more academic. I highly suggest that you check that out if that is something that you are interested in. And I do have a couple quick favors. One is if you haven't already, could you please subscribe to our podcast in whatever your favorite podcasting service is? And if it's available to give us a nice rating, that would be wonderful. The other thing is, is uh, we are so fortunate to definitely have some folks that have kind of stepped out and been part of our tippers and helped support the work that we're doing. And if you would all feel like you are inclined or able, we would appreciate your continued support through uh, Patreon. Uh, you can go to our website to see what um, you know how you can be a part of that. It's at protectyournoggin.org. And in the meantime, I hope you enjoy this episode. Greetings. In this lecture, I'm going to defend and explain the following thesis. If an academically free space is possible in society, it can only exist at a Christian university. And because of my context, I'm going to discuss this in light of a Lutheran Christian university. Some folks mistakenly think that the Lutheran confessions represent a constraint on an individual believer's freedom or a way to give churches conclusions about scripture that allow members to bypass the important work of engaging the scripture directly. While recognizing that the confessions can be misapplied in such ways, I'm going to explain how a philosophy of knowledge or epistemology inspired by William of Ockham and adapted by Martin Luther made it possible for lay people to stand boldly for the gospel with a shared confession despite authoritarian political and religious pressures. I'm going to show how this same Lutheran approach to knowledge can help protect the minds of all congregation members, especially the minds of young people, and protect them from spiritual abuse and various forms of manipulation. From this perspective, Lutheran church-related education can cultivate healthy critical thinking and empowerment of individuals who confess faith in Christ. Let me explain for a moment how this is structured. 
there's a, a way in which you find in a, a Lutheran confessional tradition the, the use of an epitome or a shorter version of an idea or a statement of belief, and then the apology. The apology isn't saying you're sorry, but this apology is a defense of that shorter, uh, simpler statement of the thesis. What I'm about to share with you is the summary of a long semester of deep searching and formulation, and I offer it to you with love. And also, I come with thanks to the Harry and Carolyn Trembeth Endowment and to Concordia University for making this lecture and the research behind it possible. Now, before I get right to the meat of my presentation, I want to start with a Chinese thought experiment. Imagine that you are a warrior and you come to a castle and there are only three people in this castle. There's a king, a priest, and a rich man. These represent, of course, political power, spiritual power, and economic power. And each of them wants you, the warrior, to kill the other two. The king says, Take out these two guys, the priest and the rich man. They're opposing my rule. The priest says, if you don't follow my way, you're going to have an afterlife of hell. And the rich man says, if you follow my path, I'm going to make your wildest dreams come true. And we don't need these guys. Now, I want you to think, if you're the warrior, what would you do? We'll come back to that after this, the epitome of my lecture. If an academically free space is possible in society, it can only exist at a Christian university. I believe this with all my heart. Permit me to explain. Only in a context of unconditional love can we have any reliable epistemic access to anything. This is true when it comes to understanding our own hearts. So of course it's the case when we ask whether the earth is on fire or old, or whether its structures are ordered justly. Only in a context that is unhindered by the demands of mammon can true research flourish with integrity in the arts and sciences. Only the teachings of Jesus are resolutely opposed to the worship and service of mammon. Only in an academic context unfazed by secular intellectual tyranny can true inquiry regarding the pursuit of goodness, truth, and beauty thrive. In other words, a Christian university is the one that follows Jesus even when the way of Jesus contradicts the influential authorities that rely on money, power, or religious magic. The only problem is, I don't know if a perfectly Christian university is possible in our present age. Permit me to explain. You see, this Christian university idea sounds like a fine idea at first. But the problem is this. Money and power, mammon and molech, constantly attempt hostile takeovers of the churches and their schools. Moreover, we must ask, who's right about this Jesus fellow? Now, a while back, a Franciscan philosopher who rejected the church's addiction to wealth named William of Ockham tried to answer the question by saying, trust your gut on this one, kids. Some clerics booed in the distance. So William called them heretics and batted the clerics' harangues away as if they were little more than pesky gnats on a warm summer evening. William said to the kids, 
Think what you think you should think, and feel what you feel you feel. Trust your perceptions. Avoid unnecessary hypotheses, and always let your conscience be your guide. A theological student named Martin Luther heard William's invitation to truth through an old philosophy book. Martin got into some good trouble, and he got into some bad trouble, but he followed his gut. And when he did, some clerics booed in the distance. So Martin called them heretics and batted the clerics' harangues away, as if they were little more than pesky gnats on a warm summer evening. Inspired by Martin, some princes got the wild idea that they could tell the Pope and his emperor what they thought Jesus' teachings were about. So again, some clerics booed in the distance, but the princes called them heretics and batted the clerics' harangues away, as if they were little more than pesky gnats. On a warm summer evening. This year, my youngest child summarized what a Christian university offers by listing the following three implicit assertions of a truly Christian university. One, you are loved unconditionally. Two, you have intrinsic value. And three, it will all be okay. Academic freedom, Christian academic freedom, exists within a space that can sincerely pronounce these words, and invite students to consider the call of Christ to a new, alternative kingdom in our world, even when the clerics boo in the distance. Now that's my main point, but to illustrate what I mean by it, we need to return to this king, priest, and rich man story. As we look at this story, this thought experiment about the king, the priest, and the rich man, I think the secret to it is to remember that you are the warrior. The student is the warrior. And if I were you, I'd listen to the warrior, warrior. So what are you going to do? Well, you have at least one option. You can follow Jesus. Who invites you to walk away from all three of those murderous bozos who want you to do their bidding, and he invites you to reject their false idols and step out in faith, like Abram stepped out in faith out of Ur of the Chaldees and into the realm of promise. You are the warrior, and if you follow the way of Jesus, you will walk away from all three of these human temptations, just as Jesus. Rejected these three temptations—temptations from the serpent during his time in the wilderness. In Matthew four one through eleven, you have these three temptations. Satan says,、uh, "You know, turn these stones into bread. You're hungry." That's the temptation posed by the rich man. And then he says, "How about you do a, a, a trust fall and see if the angels will catch you?" That's the temptation of the priest. And Satan says, "Bow before me, and you can have all the kingdoms of this world." That is the temptation posed by the king, and all three of these temptations are the story of all of civilization. And the only way for a Christian university to provide a prophetic voice within that is to be detached in some way from those three temptations. 
And as the scriptures teach, therefore, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are a royal priesthood. You are the hands and feet of Christ. You're the kingdom. And this kingdom will have no end. The Christian university is the place for that kingdom to take hold. And this, friends, is what the epistemology behind the Lutheran confessions means to me. Thank you. Well, thank you for joining us, friends. Uh, before we before we get more questions, uh, and I, I very much value at least a couple there, because <laughs> we're working on it, if you type those in. Uh, but I have a few opening remarks and uh, some kind of um, casual reflections on questions that often come up with this conversation. This conversation was in some form shared at the National Youth Gathering in Minneapolis. It was uh, at the Higher Things uh, and uh, and a couple other venues where I've been kind of workshopping some of these ideas. Uh, And so I've had an opportunity to capture a few of the questions. And in fact, it's likely that you wouldn't have enough to work with yet until you maybe go and see uh, the entirety of the paper. You can actually read it if you prefer reading it at the link I'm about to send you. That's my personal uh, site, so you can see the, the transcript of what you just saw and the entirety of the, the background to what I want to apply. What I want to do with our time here is not to get into too much of the, of the fine points of the technical philosophy, although we can do that if you ask those questions. I want to apply it to very poignant issues in our life and uh, church world today. And I especially am interested um, in uh, in kind of uh, figuring out more about where you think that this might go in the future. Um, But what's what's this really about? What am I really doing? Um, I think that this is in many ways a focus on teaching students not to deny the truth. Now, this is something that's part of our world. In Romans 1, Paul talks about this idea where we suppress the truth and unrighteousness. This is not to be denied in this conversation. In fact, it's something to be confronting head on. But when we confront it head on, we say, well, what kind of, what kind of epistemology might, might we be working with at a Lutheran university, for instance, um, a Lutheran Christian university? Well, it's an emphasis, I argue, on perceptions, not treating the interpretation of the perceptions as, um, as entirely reliable. In fact, we, we are critical of those, but rather to start learning how to trust our, uh, our perceptions, but also to trust scripture without trying to force it into a system. And I think this is the key thing that is something that if you're not Lutheran, Lutherans can offer to you, if you're a Christian, as a helpful tool for your faith. And that is to say, when scripture brings me some revelation, some important truth, uh, my, my inner temptation is to try to get rid of any unease that this text might bring me by squeezing it into a system that I feel like I'm in control of instead of letting scripture and, uh, and its, its message confront me and challenge me at times. Same thing happens in science, right? Letting new evidence, new data confront my assumptions that might be well-established scientific assumptions, but now need to be at least questioned, or if they're not questioned, I need to deal with anomalies in science. Now, in all of this, this is based on really a concern I've had for 20 years, 
So for 20 years, as a, as a church-related higher ed guy, I have often wanted to talk about these fine points of philosophy and, and the history of the Reformation with students, but then they come to my office and that's not really what they're after in terms of what they want to talk about. They want to talk about traumatization, traumatization related to spiritual abuse and also other kinds of abuse that were related to religious communities. And um, sometimes people think, well, maybe this has to do with, um, maybe this has to do with, say, uh, forced, celibacy, forced celibacy with Roman Catholics, or maybe it has to do with um, a need for more um, like protocols and background checks and all these things are important. But I came to realize three things, and these have guided everything for the research and the surrounding materials. Uh, and I should mention that, and I'll type it into the chat as well, my wife and I are working on curriculum related uh, to this for church workers. Primarily, we're thinking like, you know, if you're a DCE and you want to work with other DCEs through some uh, some of these themes as they relate to the teachings of Jesus, we're we're putting that material together and you can find it at our website, protectyournoggin.org. We started a podcast related to it as well. Uh, but the three, re three realizations are these. One, bad religious teaching is traumatizing. For this, you could think about Martin Luther's deep inner struggle with late medieval soteriology, or that is, how do you understand salvation? It wasn't just that he didn't have assurance of salvation. He was told in this late medieval context, facere quad in se est, do your best and God will do the rest. Sounds like it's nice, nice God grading on a curve, but it tore Luther up inside because he never knew if he was doing his best. And since he, he realized that he was falling short, um, that his whole life was one where he felt damnation. And in fact, the church at the time didn't give him any consolation there other than to keep trying hard because they believed in many ways that you would give young people or, or anybody license to go be horrendously evil if you ever let them out of the carrot and stick mentality. This is Reformation Sunday. And I believe that ethics, epistemology, and theology all work together for the well-being of student minds. So again, if you have a bad theology, this is traumatizing. And it, and it results in people having effects long, long through life, all, all the way into adulthood, late adulthood, where they're encountering these, uh, these bubbled up memories from church that they have to process through with, with their therapist or something, right? And we have a context for this in Lutheranism. We call this theologies of glory. Theologies of glory are um, deeply devastating. Getting your theology wrong is deeply problematic. And so even though I'm mentioning uh, a kind of, maybe even an anti-clerical uh, side of Lutheran epistemology, this is not anti-pastoral. In fact, uh, this, is, this is where uh, I think uh, we see Luther and Occam putting a little bit more um, empowerment into the called servants of God who are doing word and sacrament ministry, as opposed to an overemphasis on the on the structure or the hierarchy, uh, which tends to be more interested in power than the cure of souls, I would argue, within congregations. So the first thing, again, bad teaching is traumatizing. The, the, the second thing we realized, especially with the social scientific research that we dipped into, is that teaching the truth in a bad way is traumatizing. 
specifically teaching the truth in an authoritarian way can be traumatizing. And this is really the, the, the emphasis of the, the apology, the, the larger part of the talk. But I'll give you just a short version of it. And that is that it relates to this social scientific idea of system justification theory. Uh, system justification theory is base, basically this idea that we non-consciously tend to defend and support and justify aspects of our culture. And if it's a religious community, we defend the aspects of our, our congregation or denomination, our favorite you know, televangelist, prophet, guru, whatever. And here's how it works. If your guru changed your life, let's say you were lost in your 20s and you found a way to get out of drugs. And then it turns out that your guru turns out to be creepy. You have a great difficulty of actually seeing the truth about this. Um, and so it's not what we found. I, I thought going into this that I was going to find a lot of people that were purely hypocritical when they were uh, tolerating abuse. And I realized that it was in many ways at root an epistemological issue. I mean, maybe I'm making too much of it, but I really believe that the way we understand the philosophy of knowledge, how we should teach our young people to know, to know well, to understand critical thinking, to understand how to read the Bible for themselves, that this is at the heart of this sickness that's afflicting the churches. One, bad teaching is traumatic. Theologies of glory are wounding. Two, good theology taught in a bad way, primarily through carrots and sticks, fear of punishment and hope of reward, um, shaming, is also traumatizing. And third, and this is the most problematic, that young people who have been through a system of that kind of pedagogy, whether it's K through 12, Lutheran schools, Christian colleges, church programs, catechesis, if you've gone through a program that teaches you to dismantle your critical apparatus, um, we do this, we think, for the students' souls. We don't want them to think for themselves if that might lead them to go to hell by believing the wrong thing. But what we actually do is we create young people that have learned to be compliant. And my experience is, and I think the research bears this out, that there are many, many young people that once they hit 18, 19, they just exchange their old authoritarian um, role model or, or the person that they had given their, uh, their thought life over to. And uh, then when they leave, and maybe it was their youth, you know, DCE or youth worker. And then now they go to um, Cal State Long Beach and they have, oh, this wonderful professor in philosophy who's an atheist. Now they're just going to hand over their thinking to that person. And that's the danger. Uh, this, is, this is, again, where literal, like sexual, physical abuse, I think, comes in, because this is the, the upshot of it. Denying the truth amongst the congregation or teaching young people to deny their perceptions is what allows people to say, I know that you think that that church worker is acting in a creepy way, but don't pay any mind to that because it's, uh, you, you know, you got to see this in context. Well, when churches do this, when churches fail to recognize these, these warning signs, and we do it very naturally, um, when we do, though, uh, it creates a world where young people don't trust even their ability to have a common understanding of evidence and truth within their community. And therefore, um, they, check their, they, they check their critical thinking at the door. Uh, anybody who knows me knows I overquote uh, the Tao Te Ching. And this is just because my wife and I are working on a playful translation of it. But just last night, I came across 
cha- uh, chapter seven, one, uh, 71, we were reworking and, and, and it is exactly on the same note. Knowing when you don't know is the height of sanity. Ignoring what you do know is the depth of unhealthy thinking. Only when you recognize that your unhealthy thinking is unhealthy, can your mind finally enjoy strength and health. The sage acknowledges unhealthy thinking as unhealthy. Therefore, she keeps her wits about her. Now, I quote this because it, it uh, reminds me of something that was really powerful uh, that uh, a guy named Simeon Zoll had mentioned to me. Simeon Zoll uh, was at the time, I think, working at Nottingham. He was teaching a bunch of English students, students in England, who had to take a theology class, but they didn't care about theology. And they didn't care about especially this idea of sin. Sin, they thought, was just something that, you know, um, old people in little white churches cared about. And it was primarily old-fashioned and, and irrelevant. But what he was able to do, Simeon was able to do with these students is to, is to kind of compare sin to cognitive biases because there's some, some similarity there. If Paul says we suppress the truth and unrighteousness, then one aspect of sin isn't just the things we do, but it's the way in which our culture within a, within a church body or a college or a school is perhaps sinful in its disregard of suffering students and people who are um, either spirit, experiencing re- real physical abuse or spiritual abuse. Uh, and where we go with this is to be able to turn young people into um, young Luthers, in a sense, to be able to say that there are times when you need to be bold because you are not a slave, you are an heir to the kingdom. That's why we emphasize uh, you know, this idea of the heir to the kingdom. You are the kingdom, young person. You're not just a participant or a spectator in this kingdom, but you're called to be an, an active participant, little t theologian, little p philosopher. Um, and therefore, we're not dealing with this idea of syndericis or trust in um, for, for, for Luther and Occam. Uh, it's not a trust for young people that they're always going to be right, because in fact, you'll, you'll always have to be double checking with your mind, you know, where are my cognitive biases? Where are my, um, where are my sinful assumptions coming to play? But it does say that when you're dealing with a problem where you're not sure which of the people in the room is to be the ultimate authority in your life, I want to make the case that Luther would say that the individual thinker is the final authority. They go to wise elders for advice and for care, and they should be very nervous if what they're saying is is uh, seen to be heretical by the the church, right? I mean, heresy is a real important question, right? Um, because there are things that are just dangerous ideas. That's what we've already started with, right? So you don't want to have dangerous ideas, okay? Um, but but my question then is not about conscience in the sense of um, and ethics always being able to just rely on what your gut wants, but rather that decision-making agency. That's the part that I think that we have undervalued too often in Christian education and that I think that Lutheran epistemology has the ability to, to bring up. Because I ask you, and maybe you can feed back to me on this, is when in your life, if you've ever trusted your conscience or followed your conscience, when was that ever something that let you down? Because people can let you down. People can manipulate you. But when has your conscience ever let you down? Not your romantic longings or your appetites, but whatever this thing might be, your conscience, when you say, I know what is right here. I know what scripture is calling me to do. 
And that leads me to end this little piece here with saying that I make a lot about this idea of uh, the sin against the Holy Spirit. And I think that one of the key themes there with the sin against the Holy Spirit is this theme where Jesus says to people, you know darn well, you know darn well what the truth is. The Holy Spirit has come to you in power and you still want to call me a sorcerer. And why? We see this with the, the Sanhedrin. We see this with the, um, the records, um, extra biblical records, that that was the angle. They couldn't deny that Jesus was a powerful teacher with authority and had worked miracles. They said, if we let this guy get out of hand, we're going to lose our place and nation. We're going to lose our high priestly status if we're, if we're privileged to that in our family. And we're going to lose our nation because Rome's going to come crush us. And so Jesus said, you're not following your conscience, I think, when, when he's talking about the un, uh, unforgivable sin, that you know darn well through the power of the Holy Spirit what is the truth, and you reject it because of your own, um, your own self-interest. All right. Let me pause there, and then uh, I'll let uh, Dr. Mueller mediate questions. All right, Dr. Mallinson, we do have some questions in the chat, and they've been voted on. Uh, please keep doing that if you like. Um, so uh, we have one, the first uh, question, what do you mean when you talk about secular intellectual tyranny and how does it restrict intellectual freedom? And then uh, in addition to that, could you give an example in our Lutheran tribe and how is that limiting us? Good. Thank you so much. Um, so I, I, I tend to ramble, so I want to make sure I keep this uh, tight and then you can ask follow-ups. Secular inter- intellectual tyranny is not unknown to people across the academy and it's not unknown to folks that are politically progressive. Um, thinking of one professor at Evergreen State College, a very you know, left-leaning school, he was active his whole life in, um, in, uh, in social justice movements, in racial justice movements. He was Jewish, he is Jewish, uh, but at uh, one uh, one event where they said to people, all right, um, w- we normally have a walkout. All the students of color do not come to class on this day, but we're going to switch it and ask all the white faculty and students not to come. And he thought that that was problematic because um, that uh, that this idea of not including people is not the point. The point is uh, is completely lost on this. Well, of course, he he got, you know, he got railroaded at that institution. And I'm not going to even comment on whether or not he was, um, you know, dexterous in the way he, he approached it. But the fact is that there are, again, progressives um, that are kind of worried about looking right to the system rather than living in a state of that unconditional love. That's part of the, the Christian side of things, which is to say we might disagree with you, but we're not going to we're not going to immediately run you out when we don't see eye to eye. I think that's one key. But I also think that um, there are other areas, for instance, um, the way that research projects are funded in this in the hard sciences. Right. So, you you know, um, or, in, or in, in the social sciences and psychology, people don't tend to fund repeated um, uh, research to confirm research that had been done. They want new studies that are exciting and that sort of thing. So money tends to control what scientific research gets funded. And so my conception would be a truly Christian university would be looking out in a way um, almost, well, religiously for the common good and might be the the one academy that would have research funding that wasn't uh, going to make a ton of money for pharmaceutical companies 
or make somebody look, look really great because they discovered something new, but do that good work to say, well, they've been working on this medication for men that are 50 to 75. Maybe we should look at this same medication for women that are 20 to 20 to 40, right? So to kind of broaden that out. Uh, so, so I think the tyranny of the secular academy is real. And I would also say that um, uh, it, 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 it just crosses all the disciplines. There are any, any academic can tell you there are, there are orthodoxies in these neutral spaces and that secularity really, uh, as I think John Milbank has shown, um, secularity in many ways is really just a way of saying religious people stay out with your superstition. We're going to bracket God out of the conversation. Well, it's entirely possible with the state university uh, from that perspective to say that God might not exist, but to exclude some aspect of human um, knowing is precisely where it limits freedom. Then to the question of the, um, of the, the schools like ours, like a church-related school, I want to answer it maybe not in terms of the, the tyrannies. There, there are all sorts of tyrannies of orthodoxies for church-related schools. That goes without saying. But I'm more interested, or I would argue more worried, about the ways in which Christian universities get secularized or have their mission change, and no one's actually tinkering with it on purpose. It's often that we have the unintended consequences of some things that we really value. And I'll go right to a, a very, I think, difficult and poignant situation, which is the, um, the desire for Christian universities to be a part of the NCAA. Now, there's lots of things that I've opposed that I'm glad that happened because I, I think it's great that we got the blue dot, you know. But one of the things that I've always worried about with respect to a Christian university uh, getting involved with these other groups would be just simply say that, um, that it's the money that comes along with that that will cause a university to change its policies um, when it doesn't internally think it should. Now, I want to be very careful here because I think that Christian universities, let's, let's say when it comes to um, gender uh, neutral bathrooms or something, um, uh, or uh, accommodations for students who, I mean, let's, hypothetically, you've got students who say, listen, I need, I need well, not hypothetically, it's real. Um, uh, I would prefer halal options or you know, dietary options for Jewish and, and Muslim students. I think that it's perfectly in keeping with a Christian university. In fact, I think the Christian university should have been the first place to be able to de demonstrate that hospitality um, uh, for people that we have invited as students, as guests, as competing athletes. So I don't, I'm not saying that that's the problem, but I am interested in the way in which we don't make our moves often, not Concordia, but Christian universities in general. We don't make many moves uh, in, in those directions unless our arms are twisted by the state and I think there's where you see, again, you've got money and you've got government and then you've got church. And they're always kind of after um, their agendas for church related universities. And I think that that's I think that that's dangerous, not maybe now, but it would be in, in the future in, in more precarious ways. The extent to which a Christian university is beholden to state funding is um, the extent to which it will at some point need to um, play by its playbook, play by its rules rather than um, whatever um, was determined from internal uh, to the organization based on their understanding of their disciplines and scripture. All right, we're going to change gears a little bit. 
Another uh, question, assuming such intellectual freedom can only be achieved in a truly Christian environment, what are the intrinsic flaws of a non-Christian community that would prevent them from achieving true intellectual freedom? So, what um, would, and, and just a, a bit more on that, what would be the limitation of a Buddhist, atheistic, Islamic, or Christian Catholic intellectual approach? Okay, so I think people can come close to the, the perfect ideal that I'm after. And, and, I, and I recognize this is an archetype, this is an ideal, uh, as I'll, I'll expand more in the, in, in the apology. I don't think that um, it's, it's easy at all to separate from political ch- church uh, and, um, uh, and uh, f- financial uh, factors. I mean, it's in our own lives, this is, this is the sort of thing we have to deal with all the time. Um, but let me go with this. Um, the, the piece that to me is the most interesting is, uh, is unconditional love. And um, let's, we'll start with ourselves, right? So freedom. Freedom, real freedom, Christian freedom, not, not Western liberal freedom, but uh, what I would argue, real Christian freedom is the idea that you can become, you can get naked before the great physician, that because we are not afraid of punishment or hope of reward in a Christian context for those who are in Christ, then we can be honest with ourselves and others. Uh, I've talked about this in, um, at a conference uh, called the Mockingbird Conference. I, I did this, it's called um, uh, <laughs> Secular Hell. And I, I talk about this idea that part of the reason that people cannot confront the truth in Hollywood or politics when you've got some kind of creepy person, uh, problematic behavior, is because if you admit you're racist or if you admit you were sexist or if you admit you're harassing, then you're canceled forever. And so what you do is you deny, deny, deny until they finally have the evidence catch up with you and then you're gone. Right. Uh, that's the world that they live in, where it's like you 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 actually have there's not a lot of grace outside of the Christian community. Now, I'm not talking about tolerance for abusive behaviors, but I am talking about this idea that if somebody, let's say, decided, hey, wait a minute, that, that professor up in, um, that professor up in, uh, in Evergreen State, maybe he's missing something. A, a truly Christian community says, but we're, but we're united together in this, in this um, space. This is a space of unconditional love. So let's talk about this, right? Let's Let's not um, let's not go too quickly um, to the dismissal of somebody or to write to writing them off. Um, but if you think about it yourself, the thing that's probably making your life miserable is is something that you refuse to look at in your own life. And the reason you refuse to look at it, I would think, is that you don't trust Christ's grace enough. That is, if you truly understood Christ's grace, then you can just get that flashlight on your heart and go, Ugh. All right, let's do something about that. That's why I'm saying that the, the unhealth is when we deny the truth. You can't look at the truth unless you have a, a relationship with each other and God and the world that is already taken care of. So I'm not trying to establish anything. Uh, academics are notoriously susceptible to peer pressure. They want so badly to be liked by other academics. And one of the things I love about Concordia is that we have the lowest level of, of backbiting amongst the faculty as I've ever seen. There's always, especially, you know, when you have competitive tenure track systems, people are, are backstabbing each other all the time. People are primarily concerned to take somebody else out, knock them down. 
And I think that it is in the context of a place where you can make a mistake. And, and make, I don't mean you know, plagiarize, make a mistake. I mean a theoretical mistake. Um, you, could, you could draw a conclusion that was mm, unwise. And then you can revise in a community of people that are mutually supportive. Could, could Buddhists do this? I mean, there's like, there's Soka Gaiku, there's, um, there's Naropa. I mean, I suppose, I suppose so, but I would say that the tradition of Buddhist schools is, um, is a very limited one. Uh, so you do have madrasas and you do have, uh, you know, uh, academies like this. But I think what I'm really trying to juxtapose isn't other particular religions, uh, because there are some aspects of graciousness within, say, Pure Land Buddhism. I get that. I'm really kind of juxtaposing a place that Jesus has carved out that that refuses those other uh, influences. And there's a way, for instance, in Islam that that there isn't that separate kingdom. There's kind of the, the one kingdom, at least in most uh, considerations of what Islam and politics have to do with each other. Hopefully that answers it. All right, with uh, coming in with eight upvotes, the next one, uh, Dr. Eschelbach asks, how do we make a safe classroom space for voices of unbelief without making believing students feel marginalized? Yeah, this is good. This is really good. And this is very hard. And, 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 and Professor Eschelbach, Dr. Eschelbach, this is exactly what I'm hoping that we can gain. I think that there's a tendency for a lot of schools to say, in our increasingly pluralistic world, we've got to take a hard left turn into secularism. And I think that that has been the fate of so many Christian universities around the country. And I want us to get more Christian. But in being more Christian, I think that we can actually be more open, as Concordia has been. We're not Biola. We don't require every student to um, sign a statement of faith. And so it is that unconditional love that is that is the, the setting, right? Now, there can be places where you'd say, I, I have woes and warnings if you wanna hear them, right? But the, the idea is that every student, Christian or not, at a Christian university is unconditionally loved. This is for Lutherans. I suppose Calvinists would have a difficult time on this. It's another debate. But we can all say, Christ died for this student. You say to each student, Christ died for you. You are unconditionally loved. You have intrinsic value, whether you get an A or an F, you have intrinsic value to our conversation, whether you're a Christian or not. I would say even moreover that a college that was known or a university that is known for its integrity and its, and its honesty about its values, its Christian heritage and its Christian commitment presently would be the only kind of place and go with me with this as more of a thought experiment that could have a, a, a devout Muslim teaching a class on Islamic history, um, let's say with me, co-teaching in, um, in history and political thought. Partly this is a problem because now that Dr. Francisco has gone off to Chicago, I don't have a, a person that I can really get to teach that class, right? Well, I don't want to do things based on what, I, what my, my needs are or something, being behind, the eight ball, being behind the eight ball. But no, I'm saying that there are communities where I could imagine that it would be easier to have a voice for, for folks that are outside the system because we are so clear about what we are in to like, what, what is our, um, what is our identity? The reason I know that this can, can work is because my colleagues, um, in at crosswise build this into the system crosswise cross <laughs> wisdom 
is inviting people from outside into the conversation that does, I think, exhibit these three qualities that, that the truth is going to prevail in the end. The gospel, the word of the Lord will, will remain forever, regardless of whether we screw up our apologetics on this one or our interdenominational or, out, out, you know, ecumenical dialogue. But Crosswise has had, uh, you know, atheists come and talk about transhumanism and science. And then we wrestle with it, not just to create a straw man, but to be able to demonstrate to students that um, we are, uh, we really believe this. And we don't have to put this artificial hedge around the curiosity and the exploration because it's, it's an abiding faith, not one that we've just kind of constructed to make ourselves feel better when we put our heads down on the pillow at night. Uh, what is the nature of trauma? That word has taken on great importance in our day. And I think understanding how it relates to older, more well-established concepts, such as evil, corruption, innocence, can help mm. us deal with it. Yeah, that's a great question. And of course, you know, I, uh, I tend to always, like in a dilettantish way, dance around other people's disciplines. So hopefully if there was a student from somebody in, in social sciences, uh, please... Uh, Feel free to chat with me later about it and help me out. But but I will say that in the in the uh, apology that's coming up, uh, and this is going to be broadcast live at uh, four p.m. Jonathan, if you wouldn't mind um, uh, sharing that uh, in the chat. Uh, so if we go to the the YouTube link, then there's that hour long, it's hour and ten minutes uh, long uh, situ- situation there. Um, but uh, but there now I forgot the question. I'm sorry. Oh. Nature of trauma. Um, that uh, there's a, a Philip Grieven describes what it what it looks like, and I think that's the to me what I've really been working with is the uh, the definition of trauma in terms of of the application of it. And and a few of the the key themes there are if you have a young person coming out of their religious community and they're really depressed and withdrawn after their experience, that's a huge red flag. That um, there was some way that they were taught that. Um, that brought them not joy, but just a deep inner um, sorrow. I don't think that's good news, whatever they heard. Secondly, now, sometimes people do walk away like the, um, the rich young ruler, okay? But we're not talking about that. We're talking about just the, just the daily like, kind of affect. Another thing is where they have mind splitting. Mind splitting is where you create this church world, and then you create your real life. So you, are, um, you, you kind of operate as a young earth creationist here on Sunday morning, but then you're not over here in the rest of your life. You have a certain sexual ethic here on Sunday morning, but you disregard it altogether in the rest of your life. Um, this, this happens for a lot of people. And so they kind of create a magical world. Catechism is this magical world, almost like Dungeons and Dragons. We learn that, but we don't live in that. That's, um, that's a sign of trauma where there was something that went on there that we say, I'm just going to kind of segment that off. But the most important sign of trauma um, is the um, denial of perceptions. The idea that I can't trust my own perceptions because things seem a certain way to me. And I um, I've learned very quickly that I'm not supposed to verbalize or, um, or admit to even myself what that trauma was. And what it looks like is, is, Fact is that a lot of people who research this in terms of religious trauma, they are getting the physiological signs of um, this, of the of the sort that you 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 get in um, like a, a combat vets. Certain kind of tremors, um, the, the physiological absorption, PTSD kinds of 
um, uh, kinds of concerns. And then there's another problem, and that is if you're not the victim, but you watch that, let's say one of your classmates was was molested, and then um, and the church didn't do anything about it. This creates a problem known as moral injury. And uh, on our podcast, we we had. Uh, interviewed a couple people, one being an army chaplain talking about moral injury. And that's not like PTSD. That's where you, you lose trust in the, in the moral fabric of the universe. Like you don't trust your parents anymore. You don't trust your clergy anymore. You don't trust your teachers. Like the whole world kind of falls out from under you in terms of the virtue and those established, um, you know, values that protect us. All right, I think related to that one, uh, the church at large has damaged her witness to the world through the unforgiveness and backbiting. How do we begin a process of regaining trust? Yeah, thank you. I mean, I think the first thing to do is when we when we develop our prophetic voices within the academy, which is, I think, a big piece too. I, I want to see us, especially at Concordia and other Lutheran institutions, because of our broader conversation um, networks with the students, especially, um, I want us to demonstrate trust by being trustworthy. And that is, I think we need to end all of these, um, showboats, uh, these, uh, these ways in which there's been an extra, uh, academic industry of apologetics, for instance, um, in the sad case of Ravi Zacharias, uh, whose, whose name has been kind of, uh, tarnished by himself, I would argue, I think it seems fair to say that there's this, there's this world where we say there's a, a an industry or a show where we're going to, we're going to kind of pretend it's almost like WWE. Let's find a, an atheist and let's find a Christian. We're going to like make them fight like, you know, dogfight, And then we go back to our respective places and, and retrench. Nothing gets accomplished. I want us to see more boldness as faithful Christian academics in the larger academic academic world and make it so that when people come visit, for instance, at a, um, uh, at a convocation or at a panel or a conference we might put on that they feel more welcomed and uh, accepted, not necessarily their beliefs, in fact, not their beliefs, but that we love people so much, but we're just, we're just, just genuine with them and want to have real conversations. You develop that trust. I think that that becomes something that people will really long for. And I think it will, at just a practical level, make it marketable um, for a university. Uh, would think what you think and feel what you feel open the door to radical antinomianism? I thought it was going to go, would it lead to relativism? And I think, uh, I mean, just say something about relativism and no, not relativism, because um, uh, I think that this for me is the insight that is, that is important for our times today. I'm getting a sense that conservative Christian kids, uh, uh, multicultural, multiculturally trained, uh, non-denominational kids, uh, secular kids, atheist kids, uh, they're all kind of living in a world where everybody's got their own private truth. And what I think this calls us to is to say, yeah, but I see something here. There are some things that are obvious. Some things are hard, but there are some things that are obvious. So that's the, uh, that's the relativism side. I think this is a rejection of relativism. We respect perspectives, but there's something out there that it's the, it's the evidence, it's the data. Our interpretations are underdetermined, but the data is the data, okay? To antinomianism, 
you're going to want to listen to the apology because I talk about uh, a way in which I think that sometimes I think antinomianism for many, and, and this question of the so-called third use of the law is, is, um, is misunderstanding a whole bunch of stuff, but specifically the idea that there is this law that's above God. I think some good Lutherans who sound like they're dangling towards antinomianism, what they're really saying is that God is not beholden to a law that's outside of him. This is to the Euthyphro dialogue where, uh, you know, Socrates is asking Plato's making a mask it, um, is something good because the gods demand it or do the gods demand stuff because it's good. Strangely, Occam, as I'll tease out in the, in the apology, Occam says that things are good because God demands them and that sometimes God demands some things and then he changes so that, that, you know, God will say to Peter, um, some things have changed and Peter wants to say, ah, but this doesn't fit the structure. And like, and so for Occam, the idea is it's just a radical contingency. Each Bible verse is, needs to be taken on its own and needs to be taken in a very precise way. Um, so, but, but why not? But, but what, when we think about antinomianism where it's like, there's um, no, um, like we don't worry anymore about um, ethical standards or, or that I I'm actually uh, of the opinion that this takes us in the exact opposite direction. I think that there has been a great deal of actual antinomianism in the Protestant churches where we say God doesn't really care about the wickedness and the mismanagement and the, and the fraud of, of the churches, you know, or of our, or of our church related schools or whatever. No, I mean, it's the exact opposite. It's that we need to return to the truth and the only way we can return to the truth is if we're able to look at ourselves and others with the umbrella of unconditional love. It's under unconditional love that I can be honest about myself. In marriages, according to John Gottman, who's a, a very important writer on, on, on marriage and, and he can predict divorce, he says, when you, when you start to get caught up in defensiveness, that's a sign that you're ready for divorce. And what is defensiveness? You never are honest about the facts of what you did because you're, and, and you can't even, um, you can't even see your own flaws because you're just, you've already built up this battle, this wall. The gospel breaks that down in marriages. It breaks it down in truth. If I am hurting my wife, but I can't see it because of sin, the gospel helps me to repent. It helps me to come to my senses. That's Luther's understanding of what repentance is. And when we repent, that's when we can start to attack the aspects of, uh, of our sin nature that are negatively affecting our epistemology or are negatively affecting the way we know things in the world. Um, and when we're defensive, when we're defensive, it's, it's a sign that we, we don't trust God's grace for us. And so I think that by trusting God's grace for us, we can do two things better. One, we can start to discern. I don't think there's been enough discernment. And this is good. Whoever asked the question about antinomianism, I think, I think this is a real problem. We've obviously got people that are legalistic and too, too uptight. Yes. But there's also a way in which we have allowed all sorts of shenanigans in the churches for way too long. I'm not saying we shouldn't forgive clergy who uh, misuse their positions, but we, but we need to be much more discerning about who gets to be in, in word and sacrament ministry. Not, not the denomination that, you know, I'm not talking about the synod. I'm talking about just churches around the country, more discernment, less judgment. Discernment is radical acceptance of the truth 
in the context of unconditional love. Judgment is condemnation with contempt. Christians of the gospel are called to the former and uh, not the latter. I think we have time for one more because the, the premiere is coming up at four. All right, so we're going to decide by the uh, number of votes. We almost made it to all the questions. We're going to leave one on the table. The one that we're going to take, how do we get donors to recognize, this is from Hope, Hope LA, how do we get donors to recognize the grace of unconditional gifts so that this freedom may be realized? The first thing is that we need to be able to put out um, material and, and lectures and, and work in the churches and community where people can see the, the great value of this, right? Like how can this create healing in our communities, economic, legal, political, uh, just all sorts of things that the Christian university can send people out with in their vocations. But I would say that, that going to the um, another aspect of this question that I think is really important, um, I really believe that the only way to do this, and this, this takes us to how could you do a Christian university? The only way to do this is to have independent funding that doesn't come with strings attached. The ability for me to be able to do this research was amazing. I mean, it was just, it was so powerful in my life in so many ways that comes through the generous donations. And if we don't have that, if it's, if it's purely based on what the government's going to dole out or how much we can extract from increasingly stressed middle-class families, that's going to make it difficult for us to be true to ourselves. I think that's uh, I think that's a good place to stop. Thank you very much. Thanks, Dr. Mallinson. Appreciate your good work and uh, blessings on it as you go forward. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, friends, for joining us for this episode of the Protect Your Noggin podcast. You want to join in on the conversation? We'd love to respond to your questions or comments on a future show. You can record a message by going to protectyournoggin.org and clicking on the blue voice message button. And don't worry about getting it perfect since you'll have five minutes and a chance to preview your message before sending. You can also send an email if you're not comfortable with leaving a voice message. Please also follow us on Twitter at the PYNP. And rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you found this show of any help, uh, why not share it with a friend? Until next time, peace upon peace, friends. But he said that wasn't any letter. He said I was going out of my mind. Not going out of your mind. You're slowly and systematically being driven out of your mind. Why? Why? Perhaps because you found this letter low too much.